Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2012 Annual Missions Conference. This is the evening service of Tuesday the 29th of May 2012. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. You know, I never cease to be amazed how God creates intersections in our lives. I was sitting there thinking as Nathan was singing that song that he wrote for Seth Beaver. How many of you knew that was the song Nathan wrote for Seth? I don't know how many of you are aware of that. I know many of you were for his funeral. And um, I got to thinking, Brother Larry, how uh, you referred to it last night, how years ago when you were preparing to come over here, the Lord allowed your pastor and you and me to meet on Saturday night for I don't know how long, probably a year and a half, two years, and we would pray together there in your pastor's study. And then when you came here, uh, two of the first people you invited over were your pastor and me, and I was honored then, like I'm honored now, to be able to come. And um, I remember those early days. I remember when the building was cold, and I was up here preaching and moving around. You thought it was just my energy. I was trying to stay warm is all it was, (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I remember those days vividly. I have nothing but the fondest of memories of those. I remember conversations, Miss Rifka, that we had. Uh, over those years, and I remember conversations with others and uh, precious times of prayer in that back room back there and fellowship with uh, tea and biscuits. And I remember a funny situation. I don't remember who the lady was. Uh, If uh, she's still here in the church, I apologize. But I got up to go get my wife another cup of tea and came back, and this dear lady said, pardon me for pinching your seat. And I said, ma'am, you never laid a hand on me. And uh, I didn't understand the word pinch means steal or swipe. I didn't understand it at that time. Uh, But I've laughed a lot about that uh, since that time. Lots and lots of fond memories. And then I got to thinking about this. Isn't it amazing, Brother Larry? Uh, I don't remember what year it would have been. It would have been, what, honey, 90 or 92 maybe that we met Brian and Veronica Beaver at uh, Tabernacle Baptist Church in Morganton. And during that meeting... Brian sensed the Lord calling him into evangelism, and he yielded during that meeting. And then uh, his path and your path crossed, and I think somehow, someway, our family, I guess, must have been the connection. I'm not sure. I don't know anybody else that you would have known. Uh, But anyway, and then Brother Brian's been able to come over here and minister so effectively here uh, all these recent years. And so isn't it amazing how the Lord just creates intersections in our lives, causes things to happen that just would not happen otherwise. And so we serve a great God, don't we? Serve a great God. And uh, again, I don't have all the answers to everything. I'll I'll be honest with you, I wish I did. I've I've, I've asked a lot of questions about a lot of things. I've asked a lot of questions about why at 16 years of age would would the Lord see fit to take Seth Beaver. Uh, We stood at the spot where the accident occurred and had an opportunity to you know, to see everything, at least have it explained to us what happened there. And I don't have all the answers for that. I really don't. I just know this. The Lord wanted Seth in heaven more than he wanted him here. That's all I can say. I don't know why my dad died at 56, never having been sick a day in his life. I don't understand that. I don't know why he would be up on the building doing something to serve the Lord and take a misstep coming off a ladder and fall to the ground, break a part of his pelvis, not a weight-bearing part, but just a part on the inside of that bowl-shaped structure and Three months later, and I talked to two doctors who said, Dave, this never happens. We, we don't know any other situation like this. Three weeks after a fall like that, a traumatic injury, a break, yes. Three weeks, a blood clot will form. But three months, never heard of that. 
That's what happened. A blood clot formed in my dad's body. They call it a saddle embolism. It's a massive blood clot. It moves through the artery walls going this way, and then it turns sideways and shuts off all blood flow. It had moved through his heart into his lung, turned sideways, and he died instantly. In fact, the doctor that was his attending physician said, Dave, if we'd have had him on a surgical table with his chest opened up, we may, may have been able to save him at that point. But he said, as it was, there's nothing we could do. I don't understand why I was in England, well, not in England, I was on my way to England, minister here, Brother Larry, when that happened. I don't, I don't know why I had to fly back to North Carolina and participate in a very difficult funeral and comfort my mom and why the Lord had Brother Gary Prisk. Remember that? Brother Gary was coming with us on that trip and I called you and said, Brother Larry, I got to go home and help bury my dad. And you graciously understood and he said, well, you said, well, what about Brother Gary? Could he take the meeting? I said, oh, I'm sure he could. He's a wonderful brother. And then your friendship with him got started. And I don't understand. I don't understand why the Lord does everything he does. But I do know this. He does all things well. He doesn't make a single mistake. And i um, just thankful for what God has done. Now, I want you to take your Bibles. And Nathan didn't plan on singing that last night. I didn't plan on saying this tonight either. But I just felt like the Lord wanted me to say it. And so... I want to share just a few things with you from my heart tonight on this final night of this missions conference. And we're going to be done. We're going to head home. We were here a little bit late last night. We won't be near as late tonight, I promise. But I want to talk to you from my heart. I want you to listen to me very carefully. I don't remember now what year it was. It would have probably been 1989 when my twin brother, who coached basketball in North Carolina at a Christian school for a number of years, said to me this. He said, Dave, he said, I know, you, I know you enjoy basketball, which I do. Played it in high school. Love it. Love it. Love to watch it. He said, would you come and sit with me on the bench? He said, I'm going to have a chair just for you on the bench, and you sit beside me and just do what you normally do at a basketball game. You say, well, Dave, what do you normally do at a basketball game? Brother Malcolm, my, my thoughts on it are this. If I'm going to pay money to go to a sporting event, I'm going to get my money's worth. Everybody with me? So it means this. I'm going to yell and scream and whistle, and I'm going to jump up and down, and I'll get on the refs every once in a while. Not too much, you know, but I'm going to get on the refs, you know. I mean, if I'm going to go to a game, I'm going to get my money's worth. And my brother knows that. So he knew I'd be yelling and screaming for his team. So he said, sit right beside me and uh, do what you normally do. The guys will love it. And so I got to the game. Sure enough, he had a chair waiting for me. I sat right beside him and watched as an official stepped out into the middle of that basketball floor with a leather basketball on his five fingertips. And the official stepped between two players. One of them was one of my brother's team, uh, team players. And he tossed the ball up like this. And if you've ever watched American basketball, you know, they tap the ball. And my brother trained his players, man, if we win the tap, which they did, man, down the floor, we're going to go and we're going to get a layup. Well, down the floor they went, and they didn't get a layup. They passed the ball around, Brother Larry. I don't know. One of his players took about a five-foot jump shot. I mean, almost a layup. Missed it. Banged it off the backboard, off the front of the iron. The team they were playing was from the mountains of North Carolina. They rebounded the ball, and whoosh, down the floor they came. My brother's team backpedaling, you know, trying to set up in defense. And they worked the ball around, took a shot, missed. My brother's team rebounded. Down the floor they came. And Tyler, I'm watching, you know, wanting to scream and yell about something. And they passed the ball around, took a shot, missed. I looked at my brother. I said, Dan, there's nothing to cheer about in this game. Nobody's making any baskets. He said, hang on, we will in a minute. Well, down the floor, the other team comes. And I was watching Brother Larry, and the team they were playing from the mountains had a 14-year-old boy playing center for the team. He was six feet, four inches tall at 14 years of age. It's a tall kid. And you could tell what they were doing. They were setting a pick around the top of the key and bringing him across that pick, trying to get the ball to him because he was their star player. And finally, he came off that pick and was open. They fed the ball to him. He caught it. The free throw stripe is right here. He just basically took basically a jump shot at the free throw line and dropped the ball right through the bottom of the basket. Beautiful shot. 
Now I'm watching my brother's guards as they inbound the ball and they're dribbling it down the floor when all of a sudden my brother elbowed me and he said, Dave, look. And I hadn't seen this because I was watching over here. Down here underneath the basket, the team that they were playing from the mountains had backed up and they had set up in what's called a 2-3 zone defense. This six foot four inch 14 year old boy is standing in the middle of the lane with his hands up like this. He's anchoring the middle of that 2-3 zone defense. When all of a sudden he had collapsed. And Carl, I've never seen a human body do this before that night nor after that night. But that night, the boy's head, that 14-year-old boy's head, was back so dramatically, it was almost, almost back here touching his spine. I mean, it was weird. He was going around on the floor like he was writhing in agony. And like a lightning bolt, my brother was up and onto the playing surface and was down kneeling over that boy's body. Now, this is not my brother's player. It's an opposing team's player, but my brother loves young people. He's looking at this boy's body, and I remember him turning and looking at me on the sidelines, and he didn't say a word. But his eyes were screaming, get help, get help. I remember walking down the sidelines, preacher really running down the sidelines and into a room where I grabbed a phone and punched 911. And I got an operator and I said, look, we're at, what's the address? And I gave him the address and I said, we're at this address and we've got a kid down on the basketball floor. Can you get an ambulance out? And the 911 operator said this, you are in luck. Those are her exact words. You're in luck. We have an ambulance five minutes away. Well, if they were five minutes away, they sure took their time because it took them a half hour to get there. When I walked back in the gymnasium, there was a lady named Pat Harris. She was down over this boy's body that had collapsed. And preacher, she was doing some kind of form of CPR. She was pushing on his chest. And in a stunned, silent gym, you could hear every word she was saying. She was pushing on his chest and saying, come on, breathe. Come on, breathe. Come on, breathe. And for a half hour, she did that. Any of you in here ever taken a CPR course? Can you imagine how demanding that was for a half hour to do those compressions? She was exhausted. When a cart came across the floor being pulled by an EMT, an emergency medical technician, they rolled the boy's body over as Mrs. Harris stepped out of the way. They slid what's called a bodyboard underneath him. They rolled him back on the board. They picked the bodyboard up, set it on the cot. They lifted the cot up and immediately, preacher, one of those EMTs started doing what Mrs. Harris had been doing. And while the other guy pulled the cot out of the gym, the other gentleman was pushing on the young man's chest. And Pastor, I followed him out into the lobby of the gymnasium. And when they got out in the lobby, out of the sight of the fans, I noticed the guy doing the CPR stopped. He just sort of peeled back. And they loaded that, uh, that cart into the back of an ambulance. A guy hopped up in the back. They shut the doors, preacher. One guy went around to drive and they didn't turn on any lights. They didn't turn on a siren. They just quietly pulled out of the gymnasium parking lot, made a right-hand turn down to the end of the property. At the end of the property, made a left-hand turn and headed toward the closest hospital. I walked back in the gymnasium and I found that lady, Mrs. Harris, and I said, um, I want to ask you a question. I said, I understand that boy's 14 years old. I mean, this was a freak accident. I mean, he's 14. He's going to be fine, isn't he? And Mrs. Harris looked at me and she said, uh, she said, I'm not sure what's wrong with him. In fact, she didn't say it that way. She said, I'm not sure what was wrong with him. But she said, I can tell you this. No, he's not going to be okay. In fact, she said, as best I can tell, he was dead when they rolled him out of here. And he was. 14. 
years old. Now, older folks, those of us that are 52 and older, I'm one of you. We think about this. But those of you that are younger, I want you to know I love you. I want to say something to you tonight. You don't think this way. I didn't think this way when I was your age either. I didn't think, you know, I might be in eternity tonight. A 14-year-old boy preacher doesn't think that. Seth Beaver didn't think that. That Sunday morning when he got up and got dressed to head to church and after church was over, after he ministered in his dad's church and hopped into the side of a car to go watch a basketball game, his New York, or excuse me, North Carolina, rather, Tar Heels play ball. He had no idea. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be in eternity. But he was. And that night, that 14-year-old boy was. Let me tell you what had happened to him. He had a congenital heart defect, we found out. His parents knew he had the problem. They had made a decision when he was a young lad because the doctors had told them, you can do one of two things. You can guard him. You can protect him. You can try to shield him from overexertion. You can do all of those things. But here are the facts. With the defect he has in his heart, the chances are he could be sitting at a desk reading a book and could drop over dead just as sure as he's out on a ball court playing basketball. You cannot stop it if it's going to happen. So the parents made a decision. We're going to let him be just a normal kid. We're going to let him just live life. And that night, as a 14-year-old, he had an appointment with death. And he went out into eternity. What I'm so thankful about is this, because I went to the funeral. In fact, we took the whole ball team. My brother's ball team went to the funeral, and I went with them. And they spoke about that young man and how much he loved Jesus and how he had lived his life at 14 years of age was serving the Lord. You know, I've often thought about that. What if he'd lived like most of us live? You know, it's something I'm going to do later. I mean, I'm going to serve the Lord later. He never got a later. At 14, he offered to the Lord what he had done for him up to that point. And he had been a wonderful witness for Christ. Now you say, Brother Kistler, why are you, why are you talking to us about this? Because of a verse of Scripture I want you to look at in James chapter number 4, beginning at verse number 13, which says this, Go to now. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city, continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. Now, let me have you look up at me for just a minute. Go to now. That's an interesting phrase. And again, I'm not going to try to use the Greek word because my buddy's here and he'd have to correct me. But anyway, I thank God for you, by the way. But anyway, the, the phrase literally means this. It means hold on just a second. Cool your jets just a minute. Go to now. Slow down just a little bit in all your planning. Ye that say today or tomorrow we're going to uproot and we're going to move into this city and we're going to set up our business and we're going to buy and sell and make a nice healthy profit, which is what the words get, gain mean. We're going to make a nice healthy profit. James says, hold on just a second. Slow down a little bit. Well, why does he say that? Look in verse number 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow... For what is your life? Well, that's one of the greatest questions anybody will ever be asked. What is your life? Well, here's the answer. It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, that is, if the Lord wills it, if the Lord desires it, if the Lord allows it, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. And by the way, the word boastings literally means you rejoice in your arrogant assumptions. See, Brother Larry, I, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot this week. It's two and a half years worth of planning what we're going to do when we leave here on different flights on Friday. We're going to go to Kenya. We've been planning for this, praying about this for two and a half years. But I've thought a lot about this. In some ways, we've made some arrogant assumptions. 
We've told people. We've advertised it. You know what? We're going to be in Kenya, and we're going to be under a big 3,000-person tent. We're going to preach the gospel. They're wanting to televise that at some point. If they do, it'll go to 60 million people around Kenya and Somalia and Uganda and Tanzania, and it will if they televise it. But the fact is this, folks. I don't know. I may not make it till Friday. You say, preacher, why would you say that? Because we're going to London tomorrow. I mean, that's a dangerous place, isn't it? I mean, anything could happen in London, couldn't it? By the way, anything could happen right here in the church tonight. I don't know. Neither do you. But we make all kinds of assumptions, arrogantly assuming, I'm going to get to do this and do that. Brother, I pray for you. I've thought about where God's called you. I've thought about you and you going back, maybe at some point back to Greece and how your choice vessels that God wants to use in Chicago and wherever God's going to use you, folk. I've thought so much about this. Man, what a great opportunity of ministry you're going to have. But the facts are these. You may not ever get to Chicago. And I hope you do with everything that's in me. I pray you do. You may not get back to Greece with everything that's in me. I pray you do. But, folk, the fact is this. I may not make it to Kenya. But we rejoice in our arrogant assumptions. Look what else the verse says. And all such rejoicing is evil. Verse 17 of James 4 says this, Therefore, therefore, because we don't know what tomorrow's going to hold, we don't know that if our plans are going to come to fruition or not. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now what I want to do tonight very quickly is just, again, talk to you from my heart about why we need to give God the time of our life. Why should I do that? James answers that question very clearly, Brother Larry, in verse 14. He says there's three reasons why God needs to have our life right now. Why? Number one, because life is fragile. Life is fragile. Did you see the question, what is your life? And the immediate answer is this, it's even a vapor. Now, the word vapor means mist, M-I-S-T, mist. Brother Larry, I've seen a lot of mists. In fact, I saw some this morning when I got up. In fact, they predicted it on the weather. Going to kind of be a hazy mist in the sky uh, this morning. It's going to burn off by the afternoon. You're going to see some sunshine. going to have kind of partly cloudy skies, which they were 100% right. By the way, way more accurate than our weathercasters in the States. I mean, they predicted it perfectly. And so there was a mist out there. By the way, you can see mists other locations. You can see a smokestack. And Brother Larry, sometimes maybe as much as 30 feet, there'll be a column of mist coming up on a... On a morning as it's cold in the morning and the mist is hot and as it comes out it creates this steam or droplets of waters called a mist. Do you know from a distance that column of mist looks like it's substantive. I mean like there's something to it. Like if you put your arms around it, Brother Carl, you could actually grab some of it and bear hug it. By the way, if you watch the steam coming up out of the spout of a tea kettle when you're making your wonderful British tea, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my son was born in the wrong country. He loves tea so much. Do you know that two to three inches of mist from a distance looks pretty substantive, like you could put your hands around it and grab some of it. But the fact of the matter is this, that column of smoke, that two to three inches of mist, you put your arms around it, you're going to embrace nothing. You put your hands around it, you're going to grab nothing. You know, James is saying that's life. You see, folk, at 52... I'm thinking a lot, Brother Larry, about my own mortality. Now, that's, that's, that's horrible, isn't it? 
I mean, there was a time I didn't ever think about that. Man, I am young, I'm healthy, you know, I got the world by the tail on a downhill slide. I mean, I am never going to die because two things, two things don't touch Dave Kistler, and that's disease and death. But I'm here to tell you, disease can touch us. And death can claim us. And by the way, your neighbor and all those precious people in Kenya that don't know the Lord, disease is getting them. And death is claiming them. And we need to reach them with the gospel. By the way, disease and death are both the product of sin. They're the product of sin. You understand life is fragile. It's fragile. Look at your Bible. Not only is life fragile, number two, life is fleeting. You say, Brother Kessler, what does that mean? Look at verse 14 of James 4 again. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. What is your life? It's a vapor, it's a mist, it's a fragile thing that appeareth for a little time. Little time. Am I pronouncing it right? The Greek word there is oligos. Little time. Two words in English, one word in the Greek. Oligos. An infinitely small speck of time. Well, how small, Brother Dave? Compared to eternity, incredibly small. See, Brother Larry, 100 years, 101 years, which is what my wife's grandfather was when he died, 101 years old. By the way, she's got all of those genes. She looks young. People are constantly telling me, Tyler, uh, they're saying, Mr. Kisser, I was talking to your oldest daughter, and they're talking about Betsy, your oldest daughter. And I'm saying, what does that say about me? I mean, do I look that old? Do I look that bad? Please don't answer that, okay? But the fact of the matter is this. She's got all the good genetics, okay? 101. That's a long time, isn't it? But you know what? Compared to eternity, that is a speck. Mr. Dean, a guy told me this. He said, Dave, have you ever tried to think about what eternity is like? I mean, e eternity forever. I said, yes, I have. And here's the way as a child I used to think about eternity. It's like a straight road with no bends or turns in it. And it's like I'm in an automobile. I've got the accelerator to the floor. And I'm driving at 150 miles an hour down this straight as an arrow road. And I'm just driving there nonstop forever. Year after year. Year after year. Eternity is like that. It never ends. My friend said, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good way to describe eternity. He said, let me try this one on you. He said, have you ever considered this? Imagine a bird. Imagine a bird going to one of the beaches in North Carolina. They've got a lot of beaches in North Carolina filled with a lot of sand. Any of you ever been in the United States and visited one of the beaches in the States? Yeah, they're, they're incredible, aren't they? They, they are. They are, they are Mr. He said, can you imagine a bird going to one of those beaches in North Carolina, taking his beak, reaching down into the sand, picking up a single grain of sand? taking that grain of sand and flying the 235,000 miles that it is from the earth to the moon, depositing that single grain of sand on the surface of the moon, returning back 235,000 miles, all the way back to the same beach, picking up another single grain of sand, flying all the way back to the surface of the moon, dropping that grain of sand, returning back 200, 235,000 miles, all the way to the surface of the earth, if a bird could do this, picking up a third grain of sand, carrying it all the way to the surface of the moon. He said, can you imagine how long that would take? I said, man, it'd take forever. He said, yeah, but he's going to take only one grain of sand at a time and he's going to continue this exercise until he's emptied every single grain of sand off of every beach, not just in that part of North Carolina, but the whole state. 
And when he's done there, he's going to move down through South Carolina and down through Georgia and down into Florida and around the Horn of Florida and up into the Gulf side, carrying only one grain of sand at a time. Can you imagine going 235,000 miles one direction, coming back with only a single grain of sand as he puts it on the surface of the moon? Can you imagine? He said, how long that would take? I said, it would take forever. He said, you're right. But if a bird could do that, think, Dave. By the time he completed that exercise, if he could do it, eternity will be but one second old. Wow. And folks, think of this. That eternity, which would be but one second old, is going to be filled with people who are in hell. Do you understand what the Bible says in hell? There's weeping and wailing and gnashing, literally grinding of teeth. Preacher, can you imagine for all eternity separated from God? On the flip side of that, can you imagine all eternity in heaven with the Savior, enjoying the splendor of heaven, the wonderful fellowship with our Savior and with each other, and it never ends. Why should I think about these things, Dave? Because life is fragile. Life is fleeting. It's over, it's done. I want you to watch your Bible one last time. I want you to see something. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, verse 14 of chapter 4 says, for what is your life? It's that great question. Here's the answer. It's even a vapor, it's a mist, it's a fragile thing. It appears for a little time, very fleeting thing, and then vanisheth away. Interesting terminology. Life's here, it's lived here. We exit life here because life dissipates. And then we enter the eternal realm forever. You understand life is not just fragile, not just fleeting. Number three, life is final. Life is final. Now, I had a guy tell me one time, preacher, you are dead wrong on that. You are dead wrong. Life is not final. Death is final. I said, no, no, no. I said, sir, with all due respect, you're the one that's wrong on this. Death is not final. He said, oh, yes, it is. When I die here and this life's over, I just go into the grave. And he said, all consciousness ceased to exist. And, and it's just, it's over and it's done. I'm like a dog. I said, no, you're very distinctly different from a dog. Because you have been given, and so have I, an eternal soul, a God awareness. By the way, there's a God-shaped void in every one of us that only can be filled by God himself. Now, we try to fill that void with all kinds of things. We try to fill it, forgive me, not trying to be gross. We try to fill it with sex. We try to fill it with climbing the corporate ladder of success. We try to fill that void that's God-shaped with all kinds of things. But preacher, they always leave us empty because only God can fill that void. He made us with that void that only He can fill. And at the end of life, we don't die like a dog and that's it. We're different than the animals in that we exit this life. We go one of two directions, depending on what we've done with Jesus, either to heaven or to hell. Now, I know that's not politically correct in my country. And it's probably words that in your country people don't like to hear either. Hell, oh, that, oh, that has all kinds of connotations. Listen, folk, the fact of the matter is this. It's in the Bible for a reason. It's a place originally prepared for the devil and his angels, but a place that all lost humanity will one day spend eternity 
If they refuse Jesus Christ, they don't have to go there, though. Don't have to go. Death is not final, preacher, but life is. Well, how's that? See, death is not final because all death is is a doorway. It's a portal, a doorway through which we step to go one of two directions, depending on what we've done with Jesus. That determines which direction we go, heaven, hell. Death is not final, but life is. You say, preacher, how can life be final? Have you ever thought about this? The final opportunity, the final opportunity a person who does not know Jesus ever gets to be saved, the final chance they get to call on the Lord ends, Brother Larry, when they draw their last breath on this earth. By the way, I wish I had time to take this book here and go to Luke 16, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but in Luke 16, a rich man dies. And the Bible says, and in hell, immediately, and in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments. That is, the minute he died, immediately, he lift up his eyes already being in torments, and it's amazing to me, Pastor, he prays a mercy prayer, doesn't he? Have mercy on me. You got to send somebody, dip the tip of their finger in water, splash the water on my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. And I'll not quote the rest of it to you, but the answer he gets is, in essence, I'm, I'm sorry. Too late for mercy. Isn't it amazing when he realizes it's too late for mercy, Brother Larry, he begins praying a missionary prayer. You ever notice that? I've got five brothers then. Oh, you've got to send somebody to testify. Listen to that word, Carl, to witness to my five brethren, lest they also join me, come to this place of torment. I want you to think about that. This guy's saying, I don't want my family here. I don't want my brothers here. Now, we know nothing about his relationship with his brothers, but he probably had a good relationship with them because he's concerned about them. I don't want them coming here. See, I've heard guys say this down through the years. I mean, oh, forgive me. I love military people, but they can be arrogant. They can. Oh, I don't care if I go to hell. I don't care if I go. When I get there, all my buddies going to be there. We're going to have a big party. Why don't you listen to what this rich man is saying? Ain't no party in hell. And by the way, I don't want any additional company here. What I'm asking is to send somebody to talk to my five brothers lest they come here. It's an amazing thing. It's too late for him, but preacher, really in one sense, it's too late for him to be concerned about his brothers. See, life is final in two ways. Final chance you get to receive Jesus ends when you step through that doorway called death. But also the final opportunity that we get to tell somebody else about Jesus. Brother Larry, that ends when we step through that doorway called death, doesn't it? See, when I'm in the eternal realm with my Savior, which will be glory for me, the hymn writer said. Oh, that will be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. It will be. But see, there's no more opportunity for me to witness and testify. See, all of this is things that we must do now because life is final. Let me help you understand it. Years ago, my dad was sharing with either my brother and I or just me a situation in his hometown. He was a Bible college student, and he came home, I think it was for the summer. And a gentleman said to my dad, Mrs., I'll call her Smith. That was not her name. I don't remember her name. Mrs. Smith, I'll call her, is not doing well. My dad knew Miss Smith well. She didn't know the Lord. This man suggested to my dad... She loves you. 
Charles, which was my dad's name, it'd be good if you could go by and talk to her. Dad said, I will do it. He said, son, I got busy. And he said, I never went. He said, the next reminder I had that I needed to go talk to that lady was when I was thumbing through the Cherryville Observer newspaper. And I flipped to the obituary column. And I saw Mrs. Smith's picture in her obituary. In the two weeks that had transpired, she had died. My dad said, you know what? My opportunity to tell her was over. Now, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody, but folks, I want you to think about something. There are two verses in the book of Ezekiel that are very haunting. They're in Ezekiel 3. They're repeated, Pastor, almost verbatim again in Ezekiel 33. And the verses say this, Son of man, I've made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning to turn the wicked from his wicked way, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Do you know what Jesus is talking about there? Do you know what the Bible is talking about? In those days, watchmen, son of man, I've made you a watchman. They would stand on the city wall and it was their job to scan the landscape, to look at the horizon. If they saw any dust being kicked up that might be an advancing army marching toward the city, they were to sound an alarm. That was the watchman's obligation. Son of man, I've made you a watchman. Therefore, hear the warning at my mouth. Give them warning from me. If you see an enemy approaching and you say nothing, and the city's overrun, yeah, they're all going to die. But you bear part of the blame because you didn't sound in a warning. The spiritual application that's being made there is this. When a wicked person who will not listen to the Lord, when they have a message delivered, you're not going to, you're not going to get into heaven. And we, the watchmen, don't warn them. We do bear a responsibility. I don't know about you, but as much as is humanly possible and preacher well beyond humanly possible in the power of the Spirit, I want to do everything I can to warn as many people as I can. I hope you do too. Why, Brother Dave? Because life is final. She was 15 years old when she came in from her volleyball practice at a public school in Hickory. She had tossed her gym bag just inside the door to the right, her daddy said. Her daddy, who, by the way, was sitting in the overstuffed chair on the other side of the room. And Teresa had thrown her hand up and said, Hi, daddy. When her dad, J.C. Gibson, said his daughter, 15 years old, grabbed her head and screamed in agony and collapsed onto the floor. Preacher, this was 1972. They didn't have a 911 system then. Do you remember the days where you had to dial a rotary phone? Any of you that are older like me remember those days? It took an eternity now and instant text messaging and everything. You had to dial a rotary phone, dial a seven-digit number to the rescue squad and say, you've got to come out to this address. My daughter has collapsed. Preacher, they came, put her in the ambulance, took her down to what's now called Glen Fry Regional Medical Center hooked her up to a very crude form of life support which kept her heart beating and her lungs breathing. However, they told the family very quickly something very traumatic has happened. They very quickly found out what had happened. She'd had an aneurysm, Brother Larry, inside her brain. It's like blowing air into a balloon, only the balloon, the, the blood vessel is filling with blood and it just swells up until it can contain no more and ultimately it ruptures. 
sent blood all over her brain. They told the parents, this is what's happened. That's why the intense scream and why she grabbed her head. And because of what's happened to her, if she does survive, she'll be basically in a vegetative state. Four days into Teresa's ordeal, the family was told this, you're going to have to make a decision. Do you leave her plugged into the machine? Do you unplug the machine and let her body die of just natural, it's natural course? I don't know about you, but I thought about that. What if I had to make that decision for one of my children? For my wife? What if they had to make it for me? Thankfully, those parents never had to make that decision. I was preaching on the fourth day while still hooked up to the machine. Her 15-year-old heart stopped. Now, she was an athlete. She died 15 years old. The funeral was held at my dad's church. Pastor, I remember all that day quite vividly. There were flowers. You know those racks that they hang flowers on, you know, in funerals in the States? From the pulpit to the wall. Flowers from almost floor to ceiling. From this side of the pulpit to the wall. Floor to ceiling. Flowers. From all of her classmates and all the family in the church that loved the Gibsons and loved Teresa. In fact, my dad couldn't even walk down the aisle and into the pulpit. He had to go around outside the building, come in a back door to even get into the pulpit. So many flowers. Amber, they dismissed the public high school and said, if you want to go to the funeral, you can go. There were over 300 public high school students in that funeral that day to honor Teresa Gibson. You know what, Brother Carl, I am so glad. Teresa, every day to class, carried her Bible on top of her school books. She was a cheerleader, volleyball player. She wasn't ashamed of Jesus, not at all. She would tell anybody about him and was unashamed to carry her Bible and let people know where she stood. She had a clear testimony. And that's why everybody was there that day. They knew where she stood. And so my dad did what he almost always did. He stood behind the pulpit and he looked over where the body was in the coffin, the casket, and he looked out at those 300 teenagers and all the adults that were there and he said this. He said, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to read some verses of Scripture to you. And he said, I'm going to assume some things. And he said, I'm going to tell you guys today what I think Teresa would tell you if she were standing here instead of me. And all he did was share the gospel. Hey, you're a sinner. The bad news is this. Sinners deserve a punishment for their sin. The wages of sin is death. My dad talked about all of that, the consequences of sin. But he said, here's the good news. Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, to forgive our sin. And Pastor, I remember that day he gave an invitation and there were, if I remember correctly, about 30 young people, public high school young people, who got up out of their seat and walked forward and gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. That ought to be a real amen right there. Can I promise you this? Because Teresa was in my brother and I's youth group. She never planned to die at 15. She planned to go to the mission field after college. But she never got a college experience. Dave, why did that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Why do bad things happen to good people? 
I don't have all those answers. I do know this, we serve a good God. For some reason, he deemed Teresa needed to be in heaven with him more than he needed her on earth. Brother Larry, I also know this, though this is by no means the only reason or maybe not the reason either. But I do know this, God uses tragedy. And I know at her funeral, the thing she desired almost more than life itself was for her classmates to know the Lord she loved. And most of them were not interested until that day. That day they listened. My point is this, folks, life is final. And what we're going to do for the Lord, what we're going to do for missions, we need to do now. We need to do it now. Father, would you help us? Help us, Lord, not to think like I very foolishly thought. For a lot of, a lot of years, Lord, I did. I thought this way. I'm 17, I'm 18, I'm 20. I'm 24, I'm 25, I'm graduating from graduate school. I've got my two master's degrees in hand. And Lord, I've got an entire life. I've got 70 years, 80 years, if I live to be 100. I've got all this time to serve you, Lord. That's what I thought. Lord, I'm sure glad that last year, about this very time, you gave me a wake-up call. And Lord, you know how I thought I'm having a heart attack. And I'm going to die. And Lord, I started thinking a lot differently because I realized I was no longer invincible. And I could be touched by disease. And I certainly could be touched by death. Now, Lord, you were gracious. And I'm still here, and I thank you for that. But Lord, I pray you would somehow, way, help those that have listened to me tonight to grasp what I grasped last year. And that's the brevity of life. It's a very fragile thing. It's a very fleeting thing. It's also a very final thing. And so, Lord, you begin to underscore in my life, if I'm going to do something to serve you, I've got to get at it now. Like never before, because I may not have five more years, ten more years. And so, Father, I pray you'd help each of us to get serious about where we are and what we do relative to you and your will for our life. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, that does not know you as Savior, I pray tonight would be the night, Lord, when they would not push you away. But, Lord, rather than doing that, may they be willing to come to you before it is too late. And receive you as Savior. And Lord, we'll thank you for what you do. Now friends, our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. You've listened so well tonight. I thank God for you. I hope you know I love you. I told you that several times this week. Because it's true. I love you enough also to ask you this question. And I'm begging you to be honest with me. Do you know that if your life were to end tonight, and it could. I pray it doesn't. But it could. Do you know absolutely sure that if you were to die tonight like Teresa Gibson died, like that 14-year-old basketball player that collapsed on our gym floor died, like precious Seth Beaver died, if that were to happen to you tonight, if your appointment with death were to be tonight, do you know if you were to die, do you know you'd go to heaven? I'm not trying to be morbid, I'm just asking. Do you know that if your life ended tonight, do you know absolutely sure you'd go to heaven? If you can say, yes, Dave, I know that. I don't have any doubt about it. If I were to die tonight, I know absolutely sure.
that I'd go to heaven to be with Jesus because there's been a time in my life when I asked him to forgive me of my sin and save me and I meant it from my heart and he did come into my heart and life and he forgave me and I know I'm his child and if I died tonight, I know I'd go to heaven. Friend, if you know you'd go to heaven if your life were to end tonight, without looking to see what someone beside you, in front of you, behind you does, if you know you'd go to heaven if you were to die tonight, would you just simply do this? Would you simply lift your hand and hold it up? And that's your testimony. Dave, I know I'd go to heaven if I died tonight. I know I would. Man, I don't have a doubt about it. Thank you. You may put your hand down. God bless you. I want to ask a second question very quickly. Is there anyone in the room tonight that would say, you know what, Dave, I don't know. Dave, I'm just being honest with you. I do not know that if my life were to end tonight, I don't have any assurance at all that I'd go to heaven. I just don't know that. Well, friend, if you don't know that you'd go to heaven if your life were to end tonight, can I simply ask you this? Are you not concerned enough about where you're going to spend that eternity, that forever after this life is over? And there is a forever after this life. Are you not concerned enough about where you're going to spend that, that you'd at least let me pray for you? And of course, I don't mean pray for you by name. I'd never call your name out in my prayer and embarrass you, even if I know it. But I would like to pray for you without using your name and just pray that before it's too late, you'll come to Jesus and get your eternal destiny settled. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, you're talking to me right now. I could not lift my hand to the first question. I do not know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. But yes, Dave, I will let you pray for me. I'm at least concerned enough about where I'm going to spend eternity that I'd like you to pray for me. If you'd give me that privilege, I wonder if you'd lift your hand long enough for me to see it. Is there anyone like that in the room? Please pray for me, Dave. I'm just being honest with you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. Bless your heart. Are there any others? I don't want to overlook anybody. I don't want to rush through this and not give you a chance to think about it and give me the privilege, the honor, really, to pray for you. Is there anyone else? Dave, I'm just being honest. I do not know for sure that I'm going to heaven. I just don't have that assurance at all. Yes, I would like you to pray for me, not by name. Again, I assure you, I will not pray for you by name. See, the Lord knows your name and everything about you, and friend, He loves you. That's why He brought you here tonight, so you could hear the truth. Father, I do pray. Lord, there are some in this room, you know their name and everything about them. And Lord, by their own admission, they're not sure if their life were to end tonight that they'd go to heaven. And so, Lord, I pray for them. With everything that's in me, I pray. And I'm asking you, Lord, to work in their heart. And Lord, while I appreciate the privilege that they're giving me to pray for them, I do ask you this, Lord, that they wouldn't stop with merely lifting a hand and giving me the privilege to pray, though it is an honor to do this. But Lord, may they not stop there and leave it at that. Lord, rather than doing that, I pray, Lord, they'd be willing to, to go just one more simple step. I pray they'd be willing tonight, Lord, while you're speaking to them. I pray they'd be willing to just simply let someone take a Bible, a copy of the Scriptures, and from the Bible introduce them to you, Jesus, and get their eternal destiny tonight settled. Father, I pray they'd be willing to do that. And for all you do, we'll give you all the glory. Now, folks, our heads are bowed and our eyes are still closed. Pastor Larry, you, you did this the other 
day, I think it was on Sunday morning. I want to ask you if you'd be so kind as to do it again. Would you just sort of step to the back with your head bowed? Thank you so much. Just, just at the back of this left aisle, my left there. Thank you so much. Now, friends, I'm not twisting your arm. I'm not trying to coerce you to do anything. I, I couldn't do that. I don't want to do that. I just want to give you an opportunity. Pastor Larry is standing right at the back. If you lifted your hand and let me pray for you, I want to thank you for giving me that privilege. Just want to say this. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, you could just step to where he is. All he'll do is put someone with you that will take a Bible and you can get your eternal destiny settled tonight. I just want to give you an opportunity at this point, if you'd like to do that, to step to where he is. Not trying to make you. Just want to give you an opportunity. It's my calling as an evangelist. It's my privilege to do this. Christian friends, I want to ask us one thing. While some are thinking about their eternal destiny, I want to ask us one thing. This has been a missions emphasis week. Not just overseas missions like Kenya, though that's the thing that's most pressing on my mind and my heart right now. But home evangelism right here in the country of England in the city of Birmingham. I just want to simply ask this tonight. Over the course of these three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, has God spoken to your heart and caused you to rethink, reprioritize some areas of your life? Maybe your material resources. Maybe the way you think when you're out in public. Maybe it's what you're doing with your time. But somewhere this week, God has spoken to your heart and there's been some things he's challenged you to rethink. And in light of this night, the concluding service of this missions conference, if you'd be willing to say, Brother Dave, God has indeed spoken to me this week. And I've been challenged to rethink some things and I'm doing exactly that. And Brother Dave, I would like to enlist your prayers for me as I'm doing this rethinking. Maybe it's... Maybe it's this, you're considering that card that's on the back, back there, where you will at some point in the next several weeks make a commitment to faith promise. Maybe it's that that God has prompted you to give serious consideration to. If that's the case, whatever it is God's been dealing with you about this week, if you'd be willing to admit, yes, Dave, the Lord has spoken to me about some things, and I just want to enlist you to pray with me about what God's been dealing with my heart about this week. He's spoken to me about some specific things. And Dave, I'd like to let you know about that so that you can join me in praying that I'll do what God wants me to do in those areas or that area that he's spoken to me about this week. If God has spoken to you this week and you'd be willing to lift your hand and let me know about that, would you just lift it right now? God has spoken to me this week. Just hold it up for a second. All over the room, thank you so much. Father, I do pray for these, your children and my friends, to whom you've spoken and Lord, they're... They're wrestling, they're grappling with some things that you're dealing with them about. Father, I pray you would give them your grace, your leadership, your wisdom. And Father, I pray all of us would do exactly what you want us to do. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. May we be obedient to you in the days ahead. And Father, I pray these three days that we have spent together would bring forth great fruit for all eternity. Not only in our lives, but Lord, in the lives of those to whom we will minister in the days ahead. Father, make us bold like we've never been bold to speak up in your behalf. Help us, Lord, to engage people with the gospel. And Father, use us, I pray, in a great way. And Lord, for our family and the Curtis family that's headed to Nairobi, Kenya, Lord, in just a few more days, 
Father, prepare the way before us as we've asked you to do so many times. Minimize the distractions. In fact, Lord, make them non-existent. Protect us. Give power to your word and prosper the gospel as it will be proclaimed six nights under that large tent. Father, as we interact with people, while we're there just one-on-one, -on -one, Father, use us powerfully to share Jesus with them. And Father, for all you do, we'll thank you and give you great glory. For it's in your name, O oh Lord, we ask all these things. Amen. Brother Larry, you come this way. I want to say one last thing to you. I don't know how much I've even shared with Brother Larry about my little incident last year. But I will tell you this. I was driving home in a 30,000-pound bus. My wife was not with me. My family was not with me. I'd been having for a half hour intense heartburn. I thought, man, this is weird. I've never had that before. All of a sudden, that heartburn left being heartburn and started being like my heart was doing cartwheels inside my chest. Now, I've heard all the descriptions, you know, of a heart attack, you know, heartburn, pain down your arm, you know, pain in your back. I've heard all of it. I've heard, you know, your heart does, you know, races. Well, my heart was definitely, definitely racing, and I thought, I'm going to die. I was in the left-hand lane of the interstate, the motorway, you call it over here, passing a, a lorry, you call them here. We call them semis in our country. And I thought, I'm going to die in the left-hand lane of the interstate state. I put the throttle down. There's a diesel engine with a turbo on it in that bus and it went around the truck. I got over in the right-hand lane, pulled off to the side of the road behind a car with a lady sitting in it with a cell phone up to her ear. They say this, when you think you're dying, life slows down. Boy, that's the truth. It did. I could see that lady with a telephone up to her ear. I put the bus in park, pulled the air brake up on it, shut the engine off, opened the door, got out of the car, went up to the passenger side of that car, knocked on the window. She was looking this way and did not see me pulling behind her. I scared her to death. I was sweating. She dropped the window, lowered it about this far just for her to hear my voice. I literally said this. I said, ma'am, I have never had a heart attack before, but I think I'm having one now. If I am, the last person I want to talk to is not a physician. I want to talk to my wife. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I've got my cell phone. I'm going to call my wife. Would you dial 911? She said, I will. I called my wife. She stayed on the phone the whole time. She dialed 911. I did not know I was seven minutes away from a hospital, nor did I know at that point that that lady in that car was a nurse. So a nurse was there until the ambulance arrived. My wife was on the phone. They came out there. They put me inside the ambulance, hooked me up to an EKG machine, and immediately the emergency medical technician said, Sir, you are not having a heart attack. Now, he said, no, your blood pressure is through the roof. It's 180 over 100. He said, but that's probably because of the anxiety of this event. Sure enough, it was. Over the next 30 minutes, my blood pressure came down to 128 over 70-something, which is where it normally is. He said, you're not having a heart attack. I said, well, then what was all this? He said, I don't have a clue. He said, but I would say this. I would suggest you allow us to take you to the doctor, to the hospital, and let them run tests. Got my wife on the phone. She'll remember. I said, honey, what do you think? She said, well, I think you probably should go. I said, well, I probably should. I said, well, meet me at the hospital. I said, what's the name of the hospital? They told me. Betsy said, I'll meet you there. Took me to the hospital. She was there very quickly. Five hours or thereabouts, they run every kind of test they can run on me. Kept me hooked up to a machine monitoring my blood pressure, inserted the dye in my leg. You know, it went through my heart. They said, you know, if you've got a blood clot in your lungs, it can create these symptoms. They checked all that stuff out. Five hours, a doctor walks in after all that and said, sir, you've got the heart of an 18-year-old. I said, really? That's good news. I'm 52, 18 years old. He said, yep. He said, it's not your heart. Whatever's going on, it's not your heart. They dismissed me. Pastor, about two weeks later, before I came to... Nairobi, for the pastor's conference last year, I wasn't feeling well again. Went back to the doctor. 
They run all the blood tests again. Doctor walks in. He said, sir, you've got the heart of a 28-year-old. I said, man, that's not good. I've aged 10 years in two weeks. That's not good. Of course, he laughed. I said, Doc, look, the point is this. What is going on? He said, I don't know. But there's nothing physically wrong with you. Five doctors, I don't know how many thousand dollars, and every doctor says can't find a thing wrong with you. Now, folks, I want you to listen. I've always felt good, but I didn't then. Now, all of that has subsided. But something was going on, and when you think you're going to die, your priorities change. They do. So if you don't know the Lord, can I beg of you, don't wait until you think you're going to die to call on Him. Now, that was already taken care of with me. I'd received the Lord years ago. So there was no fear about where I was going to spend eternity. But there was this concern. I may stand before the Lord today, I thought, Brother Carl, and I'm going to offer to Him what I've done for Him up to this point. And I've got a lot of plans. I've got a lot of things I want to do to serve Him. But I might not get to do any of it. When that's going through your heart and your mind, you think different. Life's fragile, fleeting, final. What we're going to do for the Lord, we need to do now. Amen. Mm -hmm.